The General Assembly is underway. Bills have been filed and the docket is set. What are the hot button issues and where do you think the legislature and the governor will find common ground? It's Stay the Water. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Laville. Stay tuned as we discuss what's happening on Capitol Hill. Welcome back. It's Stay the Water. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Laville. Thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful Sunday. Now, it's supposed to be January, and it's, it's supposed to be cold, but it's a little warm here and there. But again, it's a beautiful day, so enjoy it while you can. Uh, again, as we uh, broadcast on the campus of the Norfolk State University, home of the Spartan Nation, the largest and best HBCU in the Commonwealth, from WNSB Hot 91, the soul of the A. On Sundays, you join us as we bring to you movers, shakers, and policymakers to you to discuss issues important to the community. We couldn't do what we do without you, so we thank you for your support. You know, this is our General Assembly series, and those of you that have been listening and supporting us since 2020 know that this is a time of year where we discuss things that are going on here in the General Assembly in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we know that Hampton Roads is the center of political power. So there's a lot of great things that are happening. And, you know, we've, on, on this series of the show, we are going to have special guests. We've currently had our NSU alum and state delegate, Cliff Hayes. We also had student leadership, Destiny Jackson, on. And we're going to have multiple uh, legislators and policymakers and movers and shakers on the show from now until March to discuss exactly what's happening on Capitol Hill in Virginia. You know, but this particular show, what I want to do is do a what's happening on Capitol Hill. What are the hot button issues? I know we talk about a lot of bills that are filed and we get the stump speeches from politicians that come to us for their vote. But now that the bills have been filed and docket is set, what are the issues that are happening? What are the things that legislators are going to vote on? And where do we think the governor and the Democratic-controlled House and Senate are going to find common ground on? Well, according to the Virginia Mercury, there are 13 things to watch out for in this year's 2024 Virginia General Assembly session. Now, we know that uh, there is a beautiful, beautiful new building, the General Assembly building that's, that opened this session. Uh, for, and it is an absolute tribute to what's great about the Commonwealth. Great investment. And not only that, but we also have a lot of new faces on Capitol Hill as well. One third of the General Assembly is new. So even though we, got a, we lost a lot of experience, both to retirement and those that lost elections, we're gaining a lot of new uh, uh, ideas, enthusiasm, youth, and people that really, really are excited about public service, just as those that served before them. So with that, this is gearing up to be an, an exciting General Assembly session. But not only just the new faces, the new building, but this is also the budget year. So in Virginia, we have two types of sessions. We have what's called the short session where no budget is taken up and it's usually 45 days. And then we have the long session or the budget year, which is 60 days. So for two months, our legislators are in Richmond deciding exactly what uh, bills uh, should be passed in order to govern 
the Commonwealth. So we're going to delve into a little bit of those bills and some of those hot button issues and really kind of just pull back the covers on some of them and really talk about the impact that they'll have on the Commonwealth in the foreseeable future. But, you know, not just the bills, but we know that this 2024 year is a major election year. That's right. We've got the presidential year. So this is where, of course, we're going to elect the new president of the United States, but also we're going to elect another U.S. senator. Uh, We have uh, right now our incumbent, uh, Senator Tim Kaine, who's up for re-election, who has a challenger. Every seat in Congress across the country, including our U.S. congressman seat, Congressman Bobby Scott, is up for re-election. And in Hampton Roads itself, we have several mayor elections that are taking place, from Chesapeake to Portsmouth to Virginia Beach to Norfolk. All of these things are happening right now. So we know that not just Hampton Roads being the center of political power, but it's going to be the center for a lot of political activity and policy uh, making going forward. So that means what's happening now in Virginia on Capitol Hill is just not impacting the people uh, that are up there now, but it's going to impact what happens in November and November 5th when we choose our new president, our U.S. senator, our U.S. congressman, and also various mayors in the local area. So look for a lot of back and forth, look for a lot of uh, stances that are going to be taken, both by legislators who are in power and also our governor's mansion. But with that, both sides are going to be sounding the usual notes, according to the Virginia Mercury, but they're going to also seek areas where they can work together for Virginians. But with that, you get a lot of hot button topics like gun control, according to the Virginia Mercury. Marijuana sales, the minimum wage, abortion, same-sex marriage, and the like. So let's take a look and delve into a few areas that we think are going to, you know, really be major issues for us now and in the foreseeable future. So let's take a look at the budget. So we know that currently uh, the budget, which is this is Governor Youngkin's first and major budget that he can that he has an opportunity to dictate. And when I say dictate, that means that he sets the course for it. And what do I mean by that? When a governor comes into office here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, they inherit an outgoing budget recommendation by the outgoing governor. And from there, the negotiation starts to uh, take place. But then they get an opportunity to draft their budget. And then when they're outgoing, they... Uh, the governor that's coming in after them inherits their budget uh, recommendations. But this is Governor Yunkin's key budget that he's putting out and is entitled Unleashing Opportunity. And we know that he unleashed it and presented it in December. And now it is part of what's going back and forth in appropriations. So he crafted, according to the Virginia Mercury, a state spending plan that's um, one that really increases taxes Uh, Well, it eliminates the car tax, but it increases the state's uh, sales and use tax. Now, the Virginia Mercury reports that the criticism has largely focused on claims that these tax changes favor the wealthy and they hurt the poor. So his administration has been trying to push back on that. And and he's he wants to make as a businessman himself, he wants to make Virginia more competitive. Competitive for business, competitive for jobs. 
And sometimes you have to give tax favors and and make it more tax friendly for business to operate in your city or in in your state. And for this, under his budget, he's urged lawmakers to also not repeat what took place last year, where we didn't get a signed budget for uh, quite a few months after (laughs) the session wrapped up. Uh, So with that, some of the key components of the governor's unleashing opportunity budget recommendation are 12% cut in income taxes for all Virginians, dropping the tax rate from 2% to 1.75% for the lowest bracket of earners, and from 5.75% to 5.1% for the highest. Now, with that, that's a if you're dropping tax revenue that low, the question becomes, where are you going to get the money to fill that void? But we're not done yet. The governor also included in this budget a proposed increase in the state sales tax and use tax from 4.3% to 5.2% and broadening the category of goods and services for which the tax is levied, according to the Virginia Mercury. So with this, according to the Mercury, the plan would allow for lower income residents to claim an enhanced earned income tax credit equal to 25% of the federal credit, 5% boost and 20% existing. But in layman's terms, what, what the governor wants to do with this proposal is lower the tax rate, as we said, as I read before, but increase sales and use tax across, across more products and services that we utilize. In other words, you're cutting taxes, but you're spreading the tax burden to every, you, every Virginia citizen across more products and services that we commonly use. So you, it's, it's, it's kind of like you get a tax break on one hand, you have money in one hand, but then you pay it out of the other. So the question becomes, is it really a tax break? And is it really something that's going to help everyday people that use everyday services? And that's one thing that's going to be extremely contentious as we continue uh, the, the legislative session with the Democratic-controlled House and Senate. They're looking at how the common man, how working families themselves are going to have to deal with increased costs. And not just them, but across the state, because all of us are affected by what happens in the economy. Do you feel confident about this economy? Do you feel confident about your spending? Do you feel confident about your jobs? You know, this is something that uh, many, many people are worried about. So look for this to be a major, major point of contention in this General Assembly. And let me tell you, the appropriations docket is full. So there's going to be a back, a lot of back and forth, especially with a lot of the pandemic dollars that are, uh, that are going. You know, there, there's no more Cures Act money after this year. Uh, there's no more assistance to help pull states out of the pandemic. It's really all about what you make, that's what you spend. It's simple household economics. If you make $100, you can't spend $105. If, if you do, you're going to go into debt. And if you go into debt, it may be a little harder to get out of moving forward. So look, we're going to pay attention to what happens with the budget because that's really the crux of all government and how we operate. If we don't have the money to do it, then it just simply can't get done. 
So let's take a look at some other issues outside of the budget. Let's look at gun safety and gun violence here in the Commonwealth. Now, we do know that gun violence and especially mass shootings have been a major issue across the country. And many individuals have have been affected by the senseless acts of violence, uh, whether it was sparked by hate or whether individuals were innocent bystanders. And with that, the question becomes, how do we curb, if not stop, these senseless acts of violence? Well, there are varying opinions on how to do that, because some persons believe you should limit the sale or eliminate the sale of assault-type weapons. Some people believe that it's our constitutional right to buy whatever we want, and we should spend more of our time and money for mental health and try to find out and stop ahead of time why people would do the things that they do. But according to the Virginia Muckery, one of the first proposals Democrats filed was in this upcoming session was to ban future sales of assault-style firearms and prohibit Virginians from under 21 from possessing them. Now, of course, Governor Yunkin, who notably, according to the Virginia Mercury, wasn't endorsed by the NRA or the National Rifle Association during his campaign. However, he still presents himself as a gun rights supporter. So an assault weapon ban, according to Virginia Mercury, would likely be too contentious to win support, but a number of other gun-related bills could present tougher calls. According to the Virginia Mercury, Democratic lawmakers also filed proposals to incentivize gun owners to store their guns safely around minors. Secondly, impose a three-day waiting period for gun purchases. For, uh, for well, yeah, thirdly, uh, also to ban so-called ghost guns. And these are made by do-it-yourself kits. And this is where individuals can actually uh, use 3D technology and other uh, processes and make guns themselves that can bypass detectors and the like. So this is a very important bill for a lot of people. And also to prohibit concealed carry permit holders from taking handguns into restaurants. And finally, um, also prohibit them in establishments that serve alcohol. Now, on the Republican side, according to the Virginia Mercury, Republicans sought tougher punishments for repeat offenders who commit crimes with guns. So once again, we get the argument. We back and forth. What do we do with guns? What do we do with individuals that commit crimes with guns? But how do we stop it before it even happens? This is a constant debate across our country, not just here in the Commonwealth. But one thing about it is that something has to get done because senseless violence is something that our society simply can't take too much of. So it's time to act and it's time to move. So let's see what the legislators will do and come up with. And once it gets to the governor's desk, what will he sign and what will he veto? Another aspect of this year's legislative session focuses squarely on education. With education, it impacts all of us. I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you're wealthy. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, independent. If you're here in the United States or here in the Commonwealth more specifically, education is the key to unlock just about every opportunity that we have for a successful life and productive life in our society. It's key. It is the key. So school funding is very important 
as it relates to um, this legislative session and our society as a whole. We all agree, and evidence is clear. An educated society is a better society. It's a more productive society. But the key is, how do we now fund our schools? According to the Virginia Mercury, again, with federal pandemic relief dollars drying up, local governments are following the, uh, looking at discussions on how Virginia will address underfunding of public schools, which primarily was identified by a state study. It was the JLARC study last year. JLARC, which stands for the Joint Legislative Auditing Review Commission, which was authorized by the Virginia General Assembly, it reported that Virginia schools received 14% less state funding than the 50, 50 state average, equally equal roughly to $1,900 less per student. Now think about that. If we want to be number one in not just attracting businesses, but businesses flourishing with an educated population, we simply can't underfund our public schools. We have to fund it more properly in order to compete, not just for companies, not just for high-paying jobs, but for our society as a whole, because a more educated society is a better society. So with that, according to the Mercury, policymakers uh, have started to go back and forth on how we should fund our schools properly. Now, JLARC, the, at the study estimated that if Virginia had used the student base formula rather than staffing funding formula, schools would have received an additional $1.17 billion in fiscal year 2023. Now, think about that. It, it really just boils down to how do you see us funding our schools? Which formula do you use? Is it student base or staff base? With that being the case, the governor's administration uh, received criticism from education advocates who say that the proposed budget presented by the governor reduces state general funds for K-12 education by nearly $300 million over that two-year budget period compared to the funding level. Now, think about that. If we're already being underfunded by $1.17 billion, you tack on $300 million onto that, you're almost, being under, you're almost underfunding public schools using the student-based formula by roughly over $1.4 billion. Still, creating a handicapping our schools, our school divisions, in educating our, our students. Now, Democrats and groups, according to the Mercury, followed the budget process, uh, like Virginia Education Association or the VEA, and said that the administration is using relief funds to offset K-12 education costs, but the administration said it's not obligated to replace one-time federal COVID allocations with ongoing state funds. So that's the key. The, the federal dollars are gone. So how do we now replace those funds? <laughs> that's where the fight ensues. So we'll see what happens as it relates to funding our public schools where our kids are educated. Now, when we talk about funding things, um, schools are number one. We've got to fund our schools. We've got to fund our government. But there is a question on whether we should fund sports arenas. As a matter of fact, according to the Mercury, legislators are going to take another shot at bringing not just one team, but two pro sports teams to the Commonwealth. 
Now, it was reported that uh, both the uh, Washington-based hockey and basketball teams have proposed relocating to the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, in the city of Alexander, where the project is uh, suggested to be located. In other words, according to the Mercury, the proposed price tag to move the Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals requires lawmakers to create a new authority that would issue, wait for this, $2 billion in bonds to develop an entertainment district in the city of Alexandria to include a sports arena, a practice facility for the Wizards, a performing arts venue, and an expanded esports facility. Now, remember, our public schools are underfunded by $1.17 billion, but the to fund uh, this new sports entertainment district, we need $2 billion. Now, according to the Mercury, the governor and his partners with the project are facing opposition, of course, from some residents, questioning the proposal's perceived lack of transparency and the negative impacts on taxpayers and their quality of life. So, and also the same group of residents, they formed a coalition called Stop the Arena at Potomac Yard, question the validity of the project's economic study. Now, when you talk about economic study, uh, it says that Monumental, which is the sports and entertainment group, they would have a 40-year lease on the site, according to the Mercury, and repay the bonds annually through rent payments, arena parking revenues, district naming rights, incremental tax uh, generated by the development. Now, that's if the lawmakers can agree to the proposed deal. So over 40 years, this is what how they'll repay those $2 billion. But also, according to the Mercury, Monumental would invest $403 million into the proposed budget, while Alexandria would contribute $56 million, that's the city of Alexandria, toward the construction of the performing arts venue, and $50 million for an underground parking facility. Now, according to the Mercury, some lawmakers have expressed interest in Virginia providing toll relief for drivers in the Portsmouth area and funding to address Metro's shortfall in Northern Virginia as part of negotiations for the arena deal. So let's take a look at this. Many times, many cities uh, love to attract pro sports teams. It's great advertising for your city, great branding. Uh, it becomes part of the fabric. You know, we think about the... Uh, Boston Celtics, the Los Angeles Lakers. We think about the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, of course, you know, the Washington Commanders. And over the course of years, they've had different names. But but at what cost does this come? Um, we ask ourselves, is this good for the economy? Is it good short-term and long-term? And we also didn't talk about it here. The Mercury didn't talk about it. But also uh, when we talk about equity, and uh, social justice, usually a lot of low-priced property where a lot of poor and low-income or black and brown people live is usually taken over and those individuals are displaced. So right now, there is question of whether the Commonwealth should invest $2 billion in this. If, they should, if we do, then we should invest other dollars in helping to defray the cost of transportation for our everyday working families. In addition to that, when we talk about everyday working families, let's talk about the minimum wage. According to Virginia Mercury, Virginia's minimum wage, will it keep going up? Now, this depends on policy lawmakers that vote on two pieces of proposed legislation in this year's General Assembly. 
What are they? In January 2023, remember, Virginia raises minimum wage from 11 to $12 an hour. The tail end of that three-year gradual increase plan designed by Democrats made law in 2020 under Governor Northern's administration. Now, at that time, the minimum wage in Virginia, guess how much? $7.25 for more than 10 years. I don't know about you, but $7.25 is a cup of Starbucks coffee and maybe a pastry. You know, not too many people can make it on that. So the Democrats on the Governor Northern said, we've got to do better. And that's what we did. So, so now the same plan calls for the state's minimum wage increase to thirteen fifty in twenty twenty five and fifteen dollars in twenty twenty six. But this is only if the General Assembly reapproves those hikes this year. So, we've got uh, House Bill One in the House and the Senate from Delegate Ward, Democrat out of Hampton, and De- and Senator uh, Louise Lucas out of Portsmouth, who filed those bills to address just that. So. The question becomes, according to the Mercury, how Republican legislators have been resistant to a higher wage increase and Yunkin can put the brakes on this effort once the legislation reaches his office. But again, these are policies for everyday people. It affects all of us. So are we going to put our money toward projects that benefit some? Or are we going to put our money toward increasing individuals' ability to live a better life? This is what the legislative process is all about. This is why the legislature goes every year to represent you, the people, your issues, to legislate and pass bills and policies that are going to help you live your best life. But not just that, but we also see on the ballot where there is a discussion around issues regarding rights, such as voting rights, and healthcare rights, more specifically, the right to choose under abortion. Now, when we talk about uh, these, and also same-sex marriage rights, when we talk about these various rights, we find where uh, we know that the U.S. Supreme Court basically uh, said that there's no federal protection for women's rights to choose and abortion rights. So now they left it up to the states. So Democrats, we know they campaign heavily across the country on this issue, and they've seen some success across states uh, in the Midwest uh, in the mid-year election cycle. And we see that's going to be a big issue for this 2024 election cycle. So look for constitutional amendments uh, to go on the ballot here in Virginia. Now, of course, constitutional amendments don't need the governor's signature. But in order for, according to the Mercury, for the abortion rights amendments to become law, the General Assembly will have to pass it not just here in 2024, But again, in 2026, then it goes to the voters for final approval for a constitutional amendment. So look for that to be an issue. Also, we see where uh, some LGBTQ uh, legislators have uh, been stunned by the Republican counterparts and continue opposition to repealing Virginia's 2006 ban on same-sex marriage, which has been legally moot for really almost nine years, uh, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. But. With this, we will find uh, efforts by the Democrats to protect marriage equality uh, from any future action by uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. So look for a constitutional amendment that formally scraps uh, uh, scrapping same-sex marriage ban, uh, which will be introduced. Uh, So once again, we'll see that as an issue as well. Now, one again, when we talk about rights, 
voting rights is also going to be at the center of this issue. So today, we know that Governor Young's administration process for restoring Virginia's rights to Virginia's with felony convictions has been a sore spot for him uh, and really has been a major issue on the campaign trail. So what Virginia wants to do is automatically restore your rights. So once you serve your time and pay your debt to society, your rights will be restored and you'll be able to vote in the elections like every other citizen of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So once again, when we talk about issues, when we talk about policies, it's all about what's happening on Capitol Hill in Richmond. <laughs> but here on Stay in the Water, what we do, we monitor it for you and we bring it to you. And we also bring the policymakers to talk about it. So join us next week and every week as we continue to talk about what's happening on Capitol Hill. Next week, we'll have our policy guests. So make sure you join us. But until then, once again, enjoy. God bless. Be great. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Carrie Washington, and you're listening to State of the Water with award-winning host, Dr. Eric Claville.